Hello, and welcome to the Chain Bridge podcast. I'm John O'Sullivan, the president of the Danube Institute. We host the podcast, we're based in Budapest, and we're a think tank that brings together interesting thinkers and doers from academia, politics, the arts, the media, and business to explore contemporary debates. We have the goal not only of challenging old orthodoxies with new ideas, but also of tempering new orthodoxies with old truths. We hope you enjoy this podcast, which is co-hosted by our senior visiting fellow, David Dusenberry, and our former visiting fellow, Dr. Callum Nicholson. And now I'll hand over to them. Welcome to this latest episode of the Chambridge podcast. We're recording this literally within an hour or two of the end of Queen Elizabeth II's funeral in London, uh, although, of course, we're recording it here in Budapest. And uh, today, as our guest, we have uh, John O'Sullivan, the president of the Danube Institute, who also, of course, is uh, you've not only now witnessed the funeral, but you were there for the coronation too, John. And so I was just wondering if uh, if the two events compare. I wasn't entirely a guest at the coronation in 1952. There were a couple of people there younger than me. I was 10. Uh, there were pages, I think, people like that. There were a couple of um, people on that occasion who, uh, who were very young but no I saw it on television uh, remember that some time ago it was this four inch flickering TV screen black and white um, I was 10 and to be honest the ceremony didn't particularly interest me as a 10 year old I dutifully sat through a large chunk of it uh, because my mother was watching it and she wanted me to watch it and she kept telling me this is history and then I got away as soon as I could and met another boy from school and we roved around the more or less empty streets of Crosby and Liverland. But I, what made a deeper impression on me in a curious way was um, the year before when the king died because on that occasion, the headmaster came into the classroom I was with about another sort of 20 boys and, um, and we all stood up. Uh, uh, sorry, he said, boys, please stand up. We stood up. He told us the king had died. And um, he didn't say a great deal, just something about the king was greatly uh, loved and admired for his role in the Second World War. And then he said the Lord's Prayer. And then he told us to go home, but I want you to go home quietly and soberly and not larking about and so on. And we did. But what was interesting was that the streets were almost empty, people like us going home from um, midday jobs, I think it was about 11 in the morning, I think. And then um, the it was noticeable that even when there were other people around yes, catching a bus or something like that, they were, they were all going about in a very really sober fashion. Now, the coronation was, of course, an enjoyable event. Uh, uh, it was not... Uh, it was not a fun fair, but it was something that was celebrating something, the uh, installation of a new queen. And of course, the general feeling at the time, maybe the installation of a new age. There was, a, there was much talk about the new Elizabethans, new Elizabethan fashions, new Elizabethan figures and so on and so forth. And, um, uh, and the queen began her reign. Uh, she wasn't there for long before she had a full-scale crisis to cope with in the form of the Suez crisis. And um, of course, 
we uh, she handled that insofar as she handled all her crises as well as you might expect but we didn't know about it because it was the uh, because it was um, all her political conversations then and most of the time later took place very much in private well, John, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves necessarily, but since you mentioned the Suez uh, crisis in 1956, I'm curious, um, and, and the United States, of course, played a very pivotal and arguably a somewhat adversarial role um, in that crisis. I'm, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about uh, the, the Queen's role in the preservation of the special relationship. I think it was very important, not obvious at that time, but then uh, there was nothing that uh, she could have done at that, on that occasion, I think. Uh, that, first of all, the politicians had to settle their disagreements. That was done very quickly by Hadlam Macmillan um, in 1957, um, really. I think, yes, he became prime minister, I think, beginning of 57. And, of course, he was an old uh, comrade in arms uh, of Eisenhower. Uh, Macmillan and Eisenhower had been respectively the two most senior British and American officials in North Africa when uh, the Allies uh, were planning the invasion of Europe from the South. And they got on well. Um, and so were together, for example, with Churchill and with um, uh, um, Roosevelt at the Casablanca Conference. So it wasn't hard for them to get together. And that relationship, the special relationship between the two of them, was sufficiently solid uh, so that Macmillan uh, welcomed Eisenhower uh, and they traveled together in a coach together just before the 1959 election, which was more or less a benediction uh, of Macmillan from Eisenhower. Um, and uh, the Queen's role really followed automatically from the restoration of the special relationship uh, of that kind followed automatically between the, the Queen and the American people, were, as we have seen recently, she was extraordinarily popular. I think she was popular from the first, but that popularity has grown. Well, it's not just grown, it's, I would say, it has grown deeper. In a, a, and now there's now a different kind of affection and respect among most Americans for the Queen. It's interesting you mentioned that um, uh, at the outset, people were seeing it as the beginning of a new era. I didn't know that. And I assumed that the reputation and indeed the adoration that the uh, the Queen receives has been something that's accumulated and sedimented over the decades. But it's interesting to hear that you think it was there at the start. And I, so, so I'm, I'm wondering on that, do you think that her reputation did change or, or, or did she indeed have to prove something at the outset? Um, and I suppose it linked to that. I heard a, a, um, an interview with Bill Clinton yesterday, and he was asked about what the Queen was like, and he gave quite a candid interview. And he he said at the end, he said that uh, he said if she'd not been born into the role she was, she probably could or indeed would have had a successful career as a diplomat, for instance, which implies that he really thought she had some extraordinary qualities, which I think we've seen over the seventy years of that self discipline, that judiciousness. Um, but I wonder, at the beginning, was there anything she, you, did you feel that she had to prove? Well, the criticisms um, came quite soon. I remember in the 50s, and I think this may be even before the Suez crisis, there was a flurry of 
of uh, a small earthquake in uh, Whitehall and Buckingham Palace over some criticisms of the Queen um, in a small magazine of a respectable kind. I can't remember it now, but didn't have a large circulation. I think of um, Illustrated London News or Country Life, that kind of magazine. And the inch, and the, the article rather was written by Lord Altringham. Lord Altringham later became better known as John Grigg. He was the distinguished historian and biographer and, and a colleague of mine on the Times. And we became friends. In retrospect, it does seem that the criticism of the Queen in that article was extremely lenient. Um, he was criticizing the, the slightly stilted and over-formal uh, image she presented to the world and which when which in fact the whole royal entourage presented to the world he thought that she should broaden her interests from horse racing and love of animals and horses to uh, an embrace of culture opera music the arts and um, the uh, and, and this this cause this moderate criticism um Although I personally don't see why she should have to broaden her own personal interests just to please uh, John, um, he, he um, this caused a huge outrage, and uh, I mean he was he didn't backpedal exactly, but he did explain what he was saying wasn't very savage, and it's fair to say anyway it may have, it did have an effect, I think two in two effects. One was I think she did go out of her way after a while to go to the opera, to attend plays, to um, to embrace modern culture. Though it's fair to say that the circle that she, the Queen Mother and Princess Margaret all had, always included artists, including most notably the greatest British playwright of the 20th century, Noel Coward. And um, so I would have thought that that, that, that give you, gives you a picture of the situation. She was held in such high regard that even quite moderate criticisms caused a storm of outrage. But in the long run, she did decide that she had to open the monarchy. By the long run, I mean, uh, this happened at the end of the 60s, the beginning of the 70s, when the BBC was welcomed in and they made uh, a film of the royal family's life, which was shown. And uh, that, of course, we can discuss further because it had mixed results. Uh, um, uh, it, it, uh, in opening up the monarchy to the people, you open it up to the media, and the media was itself changing. That's interesting because um, I was thinking about uh, watching Charles last week um, become king in his first day or two. It was quite striking to me that under a huge amount of pressure, um, and clearly it must have been a very distressing time for him anyway, um, but he had at least two what you might term sort of gaffes or, or, or moments where it doesn't play very well for the camera, where he sort of called for a servant to get rid of some, rather brusquely to get rid of some pens. And then when he had a, a, um, a, he lost his temper about a pen the next day. And I thought that was very human of him. It's not something that I think he, he, would, he should be criticized for. But what it did throw into sharp relief for me is just how disciplined the queen was. Because I can't think of any equivalence over 70 years of anything she did where she lost her temper in the way that he seemed to on his first day. And um, and I, I wonder, therefore, if there's a... I mean, can you... Uh, do, do you think that in her 70 years, did she ever really make any mistakes of that sort? I mean, the only mistakes I can think of myself 
uh, are not, I think, I don't think really mistakes, but where I think in 97, the, 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 her advisors didn't really read the public mood very well. And I think her, her effort not to show too much emotion was probably correct, but it wasn't in, in, in line with the public mood. And I think probably the publication or the uh, production of that documentary in 69 was probably a mistake. But beside that, I can't really see uh, as a as a head of state any what mistakes she's made over those decades. Well, I think your memory is quite accurate. Uh, you don't remember any mistakes, and I don't think there were any. Um, you must remember, of course, that in the 50s, and until really 61, 62, uh, when the media was suddenly, the whole of British society was suddenly overwhelmed by the satire boom and everything was up for mockery. Um, until then, the British press in general was extremely respectful of official uh, people. Of course, papers of the left would take antagonistic measure, uh, attitudes on issues of social class and um, it, and. and criticism of conservative institutions. But towards the monarchy itself, there was very little criticism. Just to give you a flavor, um, when the prime minister came back from a tour of Africa in 1961, the question that was put to him by the BBC reporter at London Airport was, would you like to enlighten the nation on what you have learned in your visit to Africa, Mr. McMillan? You and you just don't get questions like that anymore. And um, the, uh, uh, that changed, however, shortly afterwards when, first of all, satire, then the Profumo scandal, they made the media in general much more aggressive, much more skeptical, much more willing to mock and, um, and ac not accepting any figures in public except the Queen herself mm. as being above criticism. And uh, uh, so she didn't make any mistakes that I can recall. And if they, she had, they would not have been covered in uh, any major way, even if they'd been caught, so to speak, in, in, uh, on, the, on an open camera or an open mic. And uh, one of the things that changed that, of course, uh, was the uh, magazine Private Eye, an outcrop of the satire boom, which went in regularly for... Um, mock serials of a romantic uh, kind about the royal family, particularly about Prince Charles, Princess Diana, all this later, of course, uh, and uh, Camilla. I mean, since you mentioned the fact that the Queen herself and alone was sort of insulated from criticism, this raises, of course, the the, the spectre or the, the figure of the royal family, uh, which has already been referred to, the death of Diana in 1997 and so on and so forth. But I, I'm curious as well, if you would agree that she has not only done an extraordinary job as um, as uh, sovereign and uh, supreme governor of the Church of England and so on and so forth, but in a, in a very difficult family setting, she seems to have been an extremely loyal and understanding uh, mother, grandmother, and so on and so forth. And, and so much of the, the royal family's life has actually played out in public, and a great deal of it has been rather uh, rather colorful. She seems to have been good to the members of her family uh, on the whole as well. And, and well, yes, she seems to have been uh, a good mother. Um, I think a prudent and intelligent person. She had obviously good, strong emotional intelligence, and um, she was um, 
uh, and she and she learned a lot as she went along. And of course, she went along a long time. But the, then there's something else playing out here. And that's the question of opening the monarchy up at all. I mean, as you remember, I think uh, Walter Badgett famously said um, you, about the monarchy, you cannot let too much daylight in upon magic, meaning that the um, meaning that the monarchy represented in people's minds something far larger than, and more impressive than it could be in, in reality. Now, she did let daylight in upon magic gradually. What happened was, of course, the first famous BBC film, which is worth watching today, shows the monarch and her family as a kind of ordinary middle-class uh, English family, just somewhat more comfortable and somewhat uh, possessing somewhat more power and responsibility than any other. But otherwise, they're all going on picnics together um, and they are having the normal kind of family interactions, funny sometimes, charming as others, which all families have and other aspects too. But the, the but then of course um, you let the uh, you let the ti baby tiger uh, into your house. The tiger grows up, and the and the what what happened first of all is that the uh, the the, the uh, press became much more aggressive, and the second thing was the ordinary middle class English family developed all the social problems that we have come to be familiar with in our lives. A marriage breakdown, uh, divorce, uh, infidelity. Um, obviously, I don't say they ran the full gamut of vices, but nonetheless, the, the, the families of England did. And um, the cameras were there uh, to record it. Not, of course, in the way the BBC had done, but the paparazzi were now around and the gossip columns were now um, let loose. And consequently, the, the monarch found herself um, having to fight hard to, in a sense, re-establish normality as a family life as once it had been in very discouraging circumstances. I think she handled all that very well, personally. Uh, even making light of it in the famous remark about uh, Annas Horribilis uh, when she gave a speech. Um, and I'd go further. Uh, if you're thinking about the Queen as someone who couldn't, uh, couldn't talk, uh, couldn't say controversial things, that is true. But when she was dealing with these as the problems in her own family life, and a lot of problems, she did manage to find very clever words. When she was dealing with COVID, for example, when she gave that very simple speech of encouragement, ending with the words, we will meet again, she not only expressed uh, an important comfort, but she was referring back to the Second World War when people remembered her, she had shared all of their privations. She'd been in the armed forces and the song by Vera Lynn, We'll Meet Again. When she went to Ireland, um, there are things she could say, Dublin in this case, I mean, she visited a garden of remembrance and she made some remarks which 
but had a big impact on Irish public opinion. Although when you see them written down, they seem dramatic. One was, of course, uh, it, we wished that things had been done differently or not at all. Um, the, um, when there was the most recent problems with Meghan and Harry, and they appeared on the Oprah show and made these kind of quite serious charges against the royal family, she issues a statement, for the first important line of which is, recollections may vary. Now, uh, th <laughs> this is very skillful. And, um, and she, I think, became very deft at turning, you know, the soft answer that turns away wrath, the clever quip, the, the, the helpful remark. Um, she was doing it a lot of the time for other people, the people who suddenly choked up in front of her and started to embarrass her. She was very good at helping to calm them down. And, um, and she had, and the experience she had of all those years, at the, both in diplomatic dealings with foreign countries and the Commonwealth in particular, with her prime ministers, and also with ordinary people whom she met on, on well, she's, it's reckoned she shook hands with more people than anyone else had done in human history. She spent 70 years going around Commonwealth countries shaking hands. So um, I think she, well, I, I'm going to correct Badgett here. I think she did let daylight in upon magic. And um, the magic didn't vanish. Um, but that's not because uh, it, it uh, but that's because it wasn't just magic. You know, it was experience. It was uh, obviously good emotional intelligence, perceptiveness, and I think the deep basic kind of kindness. I think she felt that responsibility gave was the in her case the path of duty was a path that led to other virtues. It's interesting you mentioned the letting the magic in and, and emotional intelligence because it's always struck me that. Uh, emotional intelligence is expressed less in talking and more in listening. And she seemed to always understand, it seems throughout her reign, that in a sense, her silence in many situations spoke more than anything she ever could have said. And I think in her role, she seemed to often be this sort of negation of in a world where everyone is talking, a very opinionated world. She had her opinions, of course, she gave her Christmas speech and so on. But essentially, there's an extraordinary record of of being the counterweight of being the silence in a loud room which actually draws and attracts attention and, and respect and i'm wondering if uh, what your thoughts are on that i know david we were talking before about this and you mentioned the interesting idea about silence and discretion i thought was quite interesting oh no 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 i i saw the other day a comment made by one of the former prime ministers who remarked that the queen was the only person in london with whom one could speak in absolute confidence and so I, I was uh, commenting uh, to Callum that not only was she silent, but she was discreet in the sense that she, there were many, many conversations at the highest level taking place consistently throughout her reign. And yet they remained absolutely private and, uh, yeah, in, in this sense, secret. Well, uh, this goes back to an earlier, the very first question, really. And, and my own view is that the, the Queen, um, in her dealings with politicians and with other countries and with the Commonwealth in particular, other countries. Uh, in general, she never put a foot wrong. And 
Although there were a couple of occasions, for example, um, the uh, row, uh, an internal uh, row in the conference over South Africa sanctions, she probably stepped in to nudge things in one direction. When she did put a foot wrong, she didn't leave a footprint. Um, there's no, um, there's nothing, you know, else that you could, you can follow the trail of clues to the revelation and the embarrassment. Uh, so she was extremely discreet, and even her indiscretions were discreet. Obviously, in the last uh, couple of weeks, something else we've seen emerge that I think is uh, um, a, a classic British trope, I suppose, or a key part of our national identity. Of course, we've got the Queen, but we also have the queue. And, uh, and I'm wondering what you think this, the, the, queue, the queue that we've seen in the last couple of weeks says, if anything, about, about Brits. Because I, I've seen two different interpretations. One is that it's been seen as a, as a pilgrimage of sorts, um, which is what I interpreted it as, actually. But another people saying, oh, this is just a FOMO, fear of missing out. It's people just wanting to be there and take the selfie, uh, the more cynical view. And I'm wondering uh, if you think what this... I what, believe what actually photographs were... Uh, but you mean photographs in the queue, right? Because there was no photography permitted in Westminster Hall. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, for instance, I saw David Beckham in the queue, and many, many people say this right, is a great right. thing, but I also think he's angling for his knighthood. So uh, you never really know... Oh, the, uh, I think he's a genuine respecter of the <laughs> yeah. Queen and the Crown. I mean, he said very clearly he was raised in a, a very royalist family. I, I have huge respect for his uh, his gesture, actually. Well, I think, as a matter of fact, uh, everybody, uh, well, I shouldn't say everybody because there are always exceptions, but um, most people did feel the number of emotions they were surprised to be experiencing, I think. Oh, certainly, I, that's what yeah. I found that. I mean, I, I've been in, during the funeral today, I, I, I swear someone had a bag of onions nearby. It yeah. was uh, yeah. very surprising. Yes, I, I quite agree. Um, partly, of course, that is because um, this was a brilliantly constructed funeral. Um, every detail was right, including the details which are also references in the lit liturgical statements and the way the different um, uh, prelates came forward to give slightly different speeches. Interestingly, the Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster made a speech that celebrated the, the, the Queen as head of Commonwealth. Mm. I do think that there is, um, my interpretation is, is a third one, Cameron. It's not the, the other two. I think uh, the element, element of pilgrimage is the, the element of a, of a wish to, um, to show a collective of, of affection. I think it's quite a political uh, event as well. Um, after all, you have the threats, the perils of Scottish nationalism out there, and uh, you have internal problems at the, as the funerals uh, being planned and taking place. There were race, there were ethnic riots between the Muslims and Hindus in Leicester, a city which was previously, and they were directly from uh, India, so to speak. They weren't, uh, they, they started apparently uh, over the victory of India over Pakistan and cricket, and that led to the feeling between the communities, and it's now led to full-scale riots. That's, I think, um, something that the Queen kind of event, the Queen was at pains to try to make sure didn't ever happen. 
or if it did happen, was handled sensitively. Um, but it's you know it's 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 part of the world in which we live, and we must to some extent expect things like that. But uh, I think the political side of things was was first of all about Britain. I think people wanted to say this is a good country. The United Kingdom is a good country and a decent country, and we're proud to belong there. And she um, personified that kind of patriotism. Um, the second is uh, that uh, although some of the first criticisms of uh, the Queen in all of this came from, um, I say, deracinated critical race theory academics in, um, in American universities and in some of the best universities in England, although you've got that kind of thing, there wasn't much of it. There was some. But the key thing is that it was overwhelmed by the evidence that the Commonwealth is has be, is has a real existence. You know, uh, I I think I would try to put it this way: when the Commonwealth was uh, originally envisaged in uh, really after the set after the First World War, the British saw it as a situation in which the empire would gradually evolve into a community of like-minded nations used to with a common history of kinds through the empire and, um, and, and very often similar institutions and a similar attitude. Now, the Commonwealth has had to overcome, it seems to me, in the 70 years of the Queen's realms, some real, really difficult problems. South Africa, uh, how to get South Africa to move towards um, a non-racial democracy. Rhodesia, how to bring Rhodesia back into legitimate public rule. That, both of those were attempted with moderate, with moderate or mixed success in the case of South Africa, with, it has to be said, a failure, I think, in the case of Rhodesia, which is a, in a terrible state. But, um, the, but in general, Almost all of the Commonwealth countries have tried to work with each other to achieve common objectives. The institution itself has grown. Four countries that were never British colonies have joined the Commonwealth in the last uh, 10 years. Um, it now has a very high standard, a collective standard of living. It's doing well economically. And um, the, it seems to me the, what was seen by the states, by quite far-sighted statesmen uh, in the 20s and the 30s, the Commonwealth is, has become, and we see it in this, in this um, a funeral and the people attending it and their reactions. Commonwealth has become something like the people who foresaw and tried to bring it about um, wanted. And, and that might be, become important in, in recent years. And I think in that case, there's only one thing we need to do for that to happen. We have to convert the Foreign Office from its disdain for the Commonwealth, because it's always regarded as a distraction from Europe. And now it's always wanted to downplay Commonwealth ties. The Queen, of course, played them up, uh, and she played them up very effectively, uh, but she didn't play them up for the Brits uh, because she knew, and rightly so, that if it became an institution for Britain, it would lose a lot of its appeal for the other members. It's become an institute in which the Queen um, helped to bring about a feeling that we're in it for a collect for, for what we all want, not for what one country wanted.
almost 100 years ago. A phrase I've noticed both in the Queen's uh, speeches and in some of uh, King Charles's addresses just in the first days of his reign is the phrase family of nations. You, you yeah. refer to the Commonwealth as a community of like-minded nations. But I think this is another aspect, getting back to the queue a- and the uh, the outpouring of, of love and, and the grief yeah. that comes with it that we've seen uh, yeah. on several continents, is the fact that the, the, the monarchy is an essentially familial institution. And I think for many people, and, and kind of the emotion which so many find surprising, I think reveals the fact that ultimately our tie uh, to yeah. the crown is deeply personal. And it has a kind of familial uh, character, which it seems that the, the monarchy itself conceives of the Commonwealth yeah. along these uh, familial yeah. lines. Well, I think that's right. It, what is interesting is that in 2018, and this was, in my view, not a foregone conclusion, but in 2018, all the heads, of, all the Commonwealth prime ministers and heads of state agreed to invite Prince Charles to succeed his mother as the um, uh, head of the Commonwealth. Uh, he hasn't succeeded her by inheritance. And uh, uh, the reason, I think, they made this decision is, first of all, affection for her, I think. Uh, she wanted that. Secondly, I think affection for him. I mean, he, too, has spent his life going to these countries, shaking hands with politicians, meeting ordinary folk. He runs a, a charity, he's, he runs a charity, as his father did, um, which um, obviously um, is essentially based in England, but it brings people from all over the Commonwealth, as it's young people, to benefit from it. Um, so I think that you're, you're right. The, 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 the royal family has played um, a unifying and connecting role down, down the generations here. Whether that can continue, I think we must think an open question. But so far, the omens look good. So what do you think of the, uh, uh, the prospects for you know, the Commonwealth, but also for the, for the Union itself in the, in the Queen's wake? I mean, it seems that as we've talked about, I mean, she's been an incredible unifying figure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I, I do, but Charles has obviously always been a, uh, he, there's nothing, there's no secrets about Charles. He's been in the public domain for his whole life, uh, as a, for 50 odd years now, he's been giving his opinions on many things. Um, and I wonder to what extent the monarchy can continue in the form it's been in. And, it, and I wonder to what extent it can still play that role as a unifying force. Do you, I mean, what do you think of the prospects for the Union now the Queen has gone? Well, yes, it's always been a, a unifying um, a, a institution in Britain and elsewhere, but uh, it's never been uh, uniformly popular. There have always been Republicans. Um, about a th- a, something like a quarter of the British people say they're Republicans, but none of them seem to want to do anything much about it. And the benefits of the monarchical system are very clear. Um, first of all, uh, the institution, because it, it, it never takes a partisan position, can be in everyday disputes um, and guarantee that the politicians won't go too far. They, 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 Labour prime ministers well, sometimes have been Republicans, but they have never found the disciplines of the uh, monarchy imposes on them at all difficult, I don't think. In fact, 
I think most of the time they're welcome. And secondly, because it's nonpartisan, it can actually play the really important role of umpire in a constitutional crisis. That happened in 1911 uh, in the Ulster crisis. It's happened since in, uh, in 1931. King George V brought all the party leaders into Downing Street when there was an irresolvable parliamentary crisis. And, um, well, it produced um, a national government that lasted uh, until the 1945. Um, what you, um, no other system, I mean, the presidential system can't ever provide the role of umpire because the president is a politician and therefore the people from the other party can't really trust him or her. And um, so uh, in addition to the fact that we have managed to hedge the role, the, the, the monarch herself or himself now with a, with a, a role that is not quasi-divine, but it is above normal politics. It, it is almost the sole institution which um, is above politics as opposed to, as opposed to reconciling politics. That's why the government of the country is in fact the queen in parliament or the king in parliament now, uh, because you have the parties who represent the different points of view. And then you have uh, in the person of the monarch sign, giving the final, um, uh, final, what's it called, uh, signing the bill. Uh, you have the, um, um, who's the great German philosopher? Well, there, there have been more than <laughs> there, there. There have been several. No, 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 I um, um, you know, thesis. Ah, Hegel. Hegel. Yes, Hegel. yes, 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 yes. So, think of the monarch as the Hegelian synthesis <laughs> in the uh, British Constitution. Yeah. Uh, something that uh, essentially everybody, uh, after that's after the bill has been signed, all right, you can go into the country and campaign for a change of the law back. But that's itself accepting the Constitution. So. Essentially, I'm. Um, I think that it's, it's a very good system in a, from a practical standpoint, and it adds to that practical standpoint the magic to which um, uh, Badger referred. What do you think? Uh, looking forward, I mean, obviously the funerals now happen. We've had two weeks of of mourning, I think, in the UK, and uh, but looking now, I, I think to the future, what qualities do you think Charles has, which are different from his mother, that you think might uh, be of some advantage, it's particularly in the current situation. Well, I don't think that I see many qualities different. I mean, um, it, we don't know if he's got her deafness and her, uh, uh, I better pronounce it, deftness, uh, uh, or her, or the degree of emotional intelligence she has. But um, he has a, a quality which will be difficult for him, I think. But I think he'll, uh, he'll, he'll nonetheless prevent it being a problem. And that is, um, we don't know what, if any, uh, strong opinions the Queen had. She's very discreet. We do know that, he, for example, the Prince hates modern architecture and that he is a believer in net zero and very severe uh, um, uh, policies to combat climate change. The first of those, uh, his, criti his critical hostility to modern architecture, I think that fits into the range of opinions which a monarch is entitled to have. But uh, 
Well, or, or even expected to have. Yeah, and they tend to <laughs> express, but not, I think, to express in violent uh, language. Not that I think you would. And the second, um, the second, however, is more of a problem. Um, um, particularly at the moment, climate change and net zero in particular are major public controversies with important people on either side. The establishment is clearly on Prince Charles's side here, but even so, he cannot express the support uh, that he has for these policies to the same... No, he can't really do it. He has to accept that that will be a battle uh, that carries, is carried on by the political parties and by in the court of public opinion, and he will have to accept whatever it comes. I think he realized, he said he realizes that. There is one thing, uh, event of the last few days, that makes me worry slightly. Um, he joked and uh, he had a pleasant social uh, uh, kind of conversation with uh, the uh, Sinn Féin people. And uh, at the expense slightly of Jeffrey Donaldson, the leader of the um, Ulster Unionists, of the uh, Democratic Unionist Party, um, who's, which is no longer the single biggest party, even though the nationalists, uh, sorry, the uh, unionists are the largest single block in voting terms uh, in, uh, in Northern Ireland and in the Northern Ireland Parliament. Um, I, I think that that will strongly offend Ulster Unionists because it's not so much that they were slightly joking at Jeffrey Donaldson's no longer being the, the, the leading the first minister, but um, the idea that the people who murdered three and a half thousand people are not just treated with formal politeness, which would have to happen, but also with something like, you know, friendliness, affection. I think that that he has to watch the desire, his own kind of, uh, his own desire to reconcile must not take, must not um, drive out other uh, facts he has to bear in mind. That there are, some people have done things in which might have been done differently, but were not done differently. And people remember that and remember them. I, I think when the, when the crown meets people with blood on their hands, I think it, it cannot go beyond formal politeness. I was very struck, uh, since you mentioned uh, his, uh, his time in, in Ireland, um, by uh, Charles's address to the Scottish Parliament. I don't know if either of you had a chance to, yeah, to see this. It was a very, very carefully worded, well-measured and warm address. And of course, his mother had a, a, a very special relationship with uh, the, the land and the people of Scotland. But Charles channeled this and articulated it very beautifully. Do you do you think? I mean, in addition to some of the uh, the issues facing the monarchy as an institution, it seems totally uncontroversial to say the union has issues that it is facing itself. Do you think that um, there is a chance for the monarchy actually to uh, increase the kind of cohesion of the union? Well, you may remember that when the uh, vote on Scottish independence was before the Scottish people, 
it's only about 10 years ago, um, the Queen did not make any statement to which anyone could take objection. What she did say was that people should think very carefully about this. Now, I think that tells you which side she wanted them to vote. I mean, she, there's, you kind of can't demonstrate that. Um, but nonetheless, if I'm not mistaken, after this as well, David Cameron sort of, uh, yeah. And that, that the Queen was apparently very annoyed about that, rightly so. Uh, that was an indiscretion on his part. Mm. But um, so I think that the Queen would prefer the, uh, the Queen rather uh, in the past would have, did prefer uh, the Union to stay together. Now, I think that has to be, has to be, an opinion shared by Charles. However, um, let us assume, for the sake of uh, argument, that the crown, that the um, union, uh, there is a vote for an independent Scotland, and uh, the arrangements are made for Scotland to, to actually achieve that independence. Uh, it's not beyond the wit of man for the king to remain ahead of both countries, constitutional head. He is the head also of 14 other dominions in the world, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Grenada, half the West Indies. And um, secondly, the origin of the uh, United Kingdom uh, was, uh, it goes back several institutional changes, in one of which there was the union of the two crowns, which preceded the union uh, of, the, of, of the states formally. Uh, so, you know, I think that the British uh, history, the constitutional history of Britain, and to some extent the Commonwealth, and certainly of Australia and Canada, New Zealand, is one of, in which all kinds of separations can occur in ways that um, don't break all links. I mean, for example, in British law, um, uh, citizens of the Irish Republic are not considered foreigners. And there is a complete freedom to travel in what's called the common travel area, which is the whole of the British Isles. And that's not what Arthur the Griffiths and Patrick Pierce uh, wanted when they rebelled in uh, 1916. They wanted a spiritual um, break uh, and a civilizational break with Britain. Uh, after all, John Redmond would have got them the, the, the situation they ended up with, but they wanted something more profound than that. I think um, Britain is quite content to have institutional and other changes when they're necessary, they can't be avoided, and then, but to do so in a way that maintains a lot of the social fabric of the country's concern, that continues the network of friendship, obligations, and institutional cooperation. Well, John, we can't have you here um, without asking you about what the Queen's relationship with Margaret Thatcher really was, because, of course, uh, many of our listeners, and certainly I have seen The Crown, and yeah. uh, among other things, and uh, and um, what was the what insight do you have on their relationship? Because well, that was a, a quite an unusual situation where you have a, uh, both them very both born the same year, both uh, very formidable uh leaders um in a in a difficult decade well uh, the two women were not exactly were not the same person despite the fact that they had a similar uh were the same age and of a similar 
uh, found themselves in similarly politically important positions. And, and both born above the shop. Uh, in a way, yes. Um, well, um, the answer to that is that I think Mr. Thatcher's relationships with the Queen were extremely correct. Uh, that's to say, uh, she didn't tell me or anyone else uh, except the people who had to know things. Uh, if there were rows and arguments, she always maintained that she'd had a, a, a great cooperation from the Queen. Um, if you believe the Crown, and uh, my view, you cannot believe the Crown uh, throughout, and it gets less and less believable as the series goes on. The first one, the first series, I thought was pretty reliable. And in the, in the in the one on Margaret Thatcher, I thought that, and which also included, of course. Uh, inventing uh, the uh, not inventing but uh, changing considerably the story about the intruder in the palace because um, in in that um, in that uh, particular episode the the it alleges the queen had behaved improperly in instructing and in, uh, instructing her press aide to leak stories about her dissatisfaction with the queen. Uh, with um, with Mrs. Thatcher, and then uh, pulling the rug out from under him. Now, um, I have no idea what happened inside, but it it, it would if that were true, it, that would be the sole case in which you. Sorry, that would be the sole case in which um, the Queen had behaved. Uh, in, in a questionable way. For the record, I do believe the creator, writer, director of The Crown is a, a very uh, brash Republican. So, I mean, he is yeah. not a, a disinterested party yeah. in the, uh, yeah. Well, I was wondering whether or not he had a girlfriend who was a modern architect uh, <laughs> because his picture of Prince Charles is absolutely <laughs> a terribly hostile. Uh, I just want to say thank you very much for uh, for coming on the podcast, and uh, obviously quite. I mean, certainly for me and John, I think quite an emotional uh, day, maybe even for you, David. Um, the supreme governor of my church. I feel. I, <laughs> yeah, I feel oh, that I am connected. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much, John. Thank you, David. Not at all. Thank you.